0: In today's world, we are increasingly dependent on technology. Our business and personal lives rely on it, but as you've probably noticed, it's unreliable. They promise it'll get better, but it usually gets worse. Our computers are slow, so we end up squinting at smartphones and tablets. We live in constant fear that something's going to happen to our personal data, so we're scared into paying for fake protection that proves useless when disaster strikes update attacks, fake Wi-Fi, cloud control, and other industry scandals are designed to keep the money flowing. The jokers we pay to fix our stuff have no clue what they're doing, so they do a virus scan and then wipe out our precious photos. Intelligent, successful people feel intimidated by the chaos and think it's somehow their fault. If they only knew what the industry was doing to them, they'd get torches and pitchforks. If only we had someone to explain it all in plain English so we can start protecting ourselves. Oh, wait, we do! It's the Computer Exorcist podcast with your host, Mark Anthony Arena.
1: memorial microphone in my home office overlooking the can of worms in downtown Rochester, New York. This is the Computer Exorcist podcast. Mark Anthony Arena here. So glad you joined me today. Uh, Sorry I've been a little slow with the episodes. I have spent the past seven weeks doing 14-hour days. It was ridiculous. People just really needed me. It's it's really feast or famine around here at Technosophy, and that's just how it goes. I am currently looking for more apprentices to help me, so I had lunch with a couple guys this week, and instead of employees hiding under my skirts and letting me catch the fallout from any mistakes they make, they are going to be fully independent human beings that I can refer people to. So... <clears throat> About seven years ago, I reconnected with a high school buddy uh, who owns Pod Computers, and it's a normal walk-in computer store. He doesn't go to people's homes, but he's trustworthy. He's one of the only guys I trust. I trust him with my life, and so I send a lot of people his way. He's fully independent. People recognize he's fully independent. I recommend people to him. I say, look, this is my buddy. He's a computer store. He sells computers, and he does physical repairs. And they they get that clear distinction, right? He's not underneath me in any way. Um, so, and, and, you know, he takes care of me. He gives me laptops every once in a while when I need them for, you know, nice personal laptops for myself and, and for, so I can put them in my briefcase. But um, that's the story. Um, so the idea is I will have fully independent people I can refer you to with the eventual goal that I have a whole team of competent people who can take care of my Rochester clients, and then I can keep traveling and, and going to non-Rochester and giving speeches. <clears throat> so that's that story. Thanks for your patience. Um, and, and I know I need to figure that out, right? I need to get over that roadblock before I keep doing more episodes, right? Because I'm, and, and I'm writing a book about this, actually, where I'm so eager to get to the end that I forget to do the step one, two, three. Does that make sense? You know, my goal is to assemble a team of competent people to handle Rochester, to serve my clients here before I go off and try to do all these wonderful things that I'm so eager to do. So, as promised, we are going to do a solo teaching episode today because I've got a lot of articles in the briefcase. I've got a couple, couple oldies here that are, that have been in here for a while, and it's good news. So this is going to be a good news episode. Um, two articles that are, are relatively positive. It, it's sad because technology has such great potential, right? But unfortunately, human beings, right, we all have the R-complex, as they call it, or the, the lizard brain, where we're all trying to use any kind of technology, be it swords or the cloud or anything in between, we're trying to use technology to subjugate our fellow humans. And, and in, in my book, I said, we this is the human tendency to control each other, right? So here's some good ones. Here's some rare examples where technology is being used for good. <clears throat> ZDNet. This one is November 2013. I don't know how it slipped through the cracks in the briefcase, but here we go. You're finally getting your chance to shine here, little article. Torture Testing, the Thousand Year DVD. Earlier this year, a company called Millenniata came out with a DVD that claimed a thousand year life. Could that really be true? This is written by uh, Mr. Robin Harris. The M-Disc as they call it, uses a mineral medium between two standard plastic DVD layers. I remember watching, if y'all know The Teaching Company, I remember watching a series that a professor did on mineralogy. He used to love saying minerals, minerals. M-I-N apostrophe R apostrophe L-S. The M-Disc uses a mineral medium between two standard plastic layers. When written, a portion of the mineral material melts and forms a permanent readable pit. Other writable DVDs use an organic fluid dye layer, which which you burn to, and then it degrades over time. Okay, so in in both cases, you have a standard DVD layer in the middle and on the outside, but in the middle is that burnable layer. So do you use fluid dye like a standard DVD? Right? You notice how it's that pretty blue or purple shows up on the surface that you burned, right so remember DVDs work from the center outward okay and I guess that would be the opposite of, of a traditional record right where records I believe start on the outside and go toward the inside <clears throat> that's interesting I never thought of that but DVDs start in the center so if you burn a DVD and it's only partial right you're only burning a small amount of data it'll only burn half the dvd where it'll it'll start in the middle and spin outward until it gets to the end but you'll notice anyway the pretty blue ring or whatever toward the center of the dvd as far as it needs right so if you burn half of it the center of the dvd will be blue and then the outer ring the other half of it will be plain uh, just that normal silver the disc is writable, just like any other writable DVD. But next year, Samsung and Lighton and other manufacturers are also expected to support M-Discs. You know, over the past maybe five years, I've been seeing DVD drives, new ones on new computers that say M-Disc Capable. And I always wondered what that was. I said, oh, I gotta look that up. Uh, so, especially like if you go to Pod Computers, for example, and you tell him you know me and you want a desktop PC, he will build you what we call the Mark Special, and you don't have to know any specs. You just say, "Hey Pod, if you're a basic user, you just say I want a Mark Special," and he will know what to do for you. So he sells you a tower, and it has a DVD drive in it, and it says M disk on it. So I, I always wondered what it was, and you probably wondered what it was, and now we know what it is. <clears throat> so the author says. I've heard promises like this before, and I wanted to test it myself. Milleniata sent me a a burner and some M-Discs to try out myself. standards-based accelerated life testing is like any other testing regimen, right? Shout out to my clients Dennis and Debbie, who have a business where they test products. Uh, They do torture testing, right? Superheat them, supercool them, uh, high atmospheric pressure to try to kill these products. Uh, And the manufacturers hire them to try to torture test their products. It's fascinating stuff. So this guy is going to do a real-life torture test. The use of elevated temperatures in disk drive accelerated life testing. So accelerated life testing just means, look, obviously we can't spend 1,000 years testing this disk. So we're going to superheat it, and we're going to screw it around and smash it and do whatever we can to simulate a long life to simulate a thousand years to accelerate the test okay uh, the use of elevated temperatures in accelerated testing gives us hard drives that are much less sensitive to temperature okay so they've done this for hard drives where they used accelerated testing and they figured out a way to make a heartier hard drive but it didn't mean the drives were necessarily long lived it just means they tested better good point <clears throat> he's saying it doesn't mean they're actually going to last a thousand years, because we won't know this. But if we at least do what we can, right? It it just means this stuff will pass the test better. We don't know if it'll last a thousand years. Okay, fine. But we're calling it a thousand year DVD because it makes a nice headline, doesn't it? In my testing, I took a much more brutal approach. I did things well outside any normal testing regimen. Why? Because any consumer is likely to do things that the standards don't foresee, like sticking DVDs in a hot attic for 20 years. Uh, And I have to say, as much as I love old technology, and I always tell people older is better and older is safer, what I really should say is older is more ethical. Um, I do not like floppy disks and zip disks, because they're utter garbage. Okay, floppies and zips. A lot of people would tell me, should I do backup on floppies or zip disks? <laughs> it just doesn't work. I remember z- floppy disks dying after a couple of months of use, right? Or I keep it on the shelf, and all of a sudden, sorry, too bad, it's unusable. <laughs> it's just too bad for you. It was magnetic media, and maybe the film wasn't made that well that was inside of it. It was it was magnetic information stored on film. So it was it was very vulnerable. And, you know, you walk it near a magnet, and you're just toasted. And zip disks had this thing where they just randomly died. It was called, like, random death of zip disk or something, where you would be using a zip disk, and it was beautiful. 100 megabytes, right? That's, like, almost 100 times the size of a floppy disk. And all of a sudden, this invention comes out called a zip disk, and you put it in a zip drive, and it just... Sorry, too bad. It just dies too bad for you. So again, in any case, folks, no matter what, please keep your data in two places at once, no matter what. Because all of this garbage is garbage, and it's all garbage made by slobs, and it all dies. Side note, thumb drives currently are the thing, and that's great. But a lot of people still say, oh, I have a zip drive, I have a zip drive. It's not a zip drive. Zip drives were from the year 2000. They don't make them anymore. That's it. Zip drives were the things that randomly died so people stopped using them and it was an ultra proprietary technology If they had just opened the technology up a little bit I believe iOmega was the creator of zip drives if they just opened up the technology it would have survived Okay, and maybe it would have improved and then they would have gotten over that hump of, of the randomly dying discs Just like the Sony with the beta format beta was superior but Sony kept it so close to their chest, they didn't want to license it, and we want to have a piece of the pie. Well, guess what? You get a whole small pie instead of a big pie. So, too bad for you. Beta fell apart because Sony was too tight-fisted. Same deal with zip drives. Anyway, <clears throat> so if you have a thumb drive in the year 2024, don't call it a zip drive, okay, folks? I hear that day in and day out, and it's, it's not a zip. It's a thumb drive. Okay, um... And and again, I can't blame these people. I tell people all the time, you're all intelligent, successful people who are just blindsided by an industry that changes every 12 days. Okay. So, in my experience, though, CDs and DVDs have been much better. Okay? They don't just degrade. Most of the CDs and DVDs that I burned have lasted 20 years. So, that's really good. It's still not as good as keeping it on two separate hard drives, right? or three hard drives or whatever um, I'm actually I, I in my house here I have an attic that's currently unfinished and I want to install a nice staircase and, and put some plywood flooring and, and maybe some simple cheap carpet up there and some drywall ceilings and I, I want to use it for storage so yeah I will also put my photos and DVDs up in a hot attic pretty soon we'll see what happens Anyway, he says I collected about four gigs of data—some JPEG photos and some movies and PDFs and MP3s. And then I took—I burned them all the DVD and I took all those written DVDRs and I put them outside. Half of the disc was protected from the sun, and the other half exposed to the weather, which included snow, rain, and weeks of blistering Arizona sunshine. Arizona, where I live, is not only a state, it's an environmental test chamber. Many Arizona place names relate to death, like Dead Horse Ranch and Skull Valley and Tombstone. After several weeks of this totally beyond any known spec treatments, I brought the DVDs inside and ran them through the dishwasher. The cheap, no-name store-brand DVDs totally gave up the ghost. Large chunks of the reflective coating disappeared, and the disc was unreadable. A Memorex DVR, uh, DVDR survived with the coding intact. It displayed the file information, but none of it was readable. So, shout out to Memorex. Back in the cassette days, they were just a an average brand. But I, I've bought a lot of Memorex burnable CDs and DVDs, and I just bought them because that's what they were at the store. And luckily, with that industry, it's a commodity industry. It's, it's monopolistic competition where they're all more or less the same. Right? I don't have to bark at you about what brand of DVDs to buy, luckily. I have to bark at you about what printers to buy, right? Anyway, so I love that. I go into the store, and, and there's no, nothing to worry about. You just pick a brand. And imagine that. Imagine that. All the brands are actually reputable. Imagine. <clears throat> so he says the Memorex survived, but it wasn't quite readable. Again, that's that's among the basic DVDs. Okay, that's among the standard basic DVDs with the writable die. So that's pretty good. Among the standard DVDs, the Memorex kinda sorta survived. The Arizona Sun. So the M Discs not only survived, but all the files were readable. Aha! Amazing, he says. The M Disc team has done Digital Civilization a real service by building a reliable digital archive medium that is cheap. It's just over $2 each and widely usable with current technology. That's huge. Color me impressed, he says. So that's important here. And I learned about this in Dr. Hull's class when I was in business school. And it's so, so relevant. It was a class, I think it was called Innovation Management. And he talked about... The, the technology industry, and there's a lot of terms, right? Like enabling technology, right? You couldn't have a smartphone without the enabling technology of a high end lithium battery. Does that make sense? It's a technology that enables your dream to come true. You're, okay. The other thing is we talked about installed base, right? This, there was already an installed base, right? Where many, many or most people already have a DVD burner. Okay, any computer built after 05 or 07 had a DVD burner built in, right? It used to be a luxury. It used to be, well, we'll give you a CD burner, but a DVD burner is extra. So anyway, most people have a DVD burner uh, from 05 to 2013, right? And then 2013, we, we started to see them fall off, which is sad, but... It's already there. It's widely usable with current technology. So the huge thing here, the reason why M-Disc didn't just fizzle out as some obscure footnote is because they made sure these discs were compatible with current DVD burners. Yes, sure, you want to buy one that's certified for M-Disc, as we talked about, but it's compatible with your current stuff. That's huge, okay? Dr. Hall taught us. Installed base is huge. If you already have an installed base, great. If you're coming up with a new product and a new DVD reader and a new system and a new, right? Like, zip drives were a whole new everything. New discs, new readers, new everything. Then you're swimming upstream because you have to sell this idea to the whole earth, right? Whereas this, you've already got your foot in the door. People already have DVD burners, okay? So making yourself compatible with what's currently out there is a huge lesson, <clears throat> okay? The problem is, the universe hates your data, and until now, we've had few strategies for overcoming that. Okay, right? The sun, the rain, the humidity, right? I've been scanning hundreds of family photos, and I'm putting them together in archive disks of those for my family. Until the M-disc, I wouldn't have bothered, because there was no trustworthy media to put them on. Right? Um... And again, you could put them on several copies of hard drives and then just move them forward, right? Every year you could copy your stuff and and just keep leapfrogging and just buy new hard drives and just copy your stuff forward. That's what I do. Um, And another note here that that I remember seeing, in the year 2000, Kodak had an archival-grade CD. Leave it to Kodak to take a beautiful idea and totally abandon it. Um, it was called Kodak Gold CD, and it was projected to last 100 years. Okay. So I wonder how those Kodak discs are doing because they're already 20 years old. So that that's a good test right there to say, hey, folks, look, we got these discs. They're about one-fifth of the way through their projected life. How did they do? So, yeah, nice job, Kodak. You, you could have kept going with that, and, and I hope you're still selling those gold CDs. Is m technology perfect? No, only about a dozen LG burners are certified to write M-Discs. Okay, again, they they could all work, but they're only cert only certain ones are certified, and Although other burners may be able to Another catch M-Discs may not be readable by every DVD player, okay? And by the way, almost all new DVD players are, and, and DVD burners are M-Disc certified, so that's something, right? Um, so M-Disc might not be readable by every DVD player, but given the ubiquity of DVD readers, I don't think that's much of a problem. If one doesn't work, try another. Okay? He says if you have data you care about, the M-Disc is the only uh, care about keeping for decades, the M-Disc is the only game in town. Here's a huge thing. I was talking to a buddy, my buddy John, who runs a uh, video archival company. He, he digitizes people's home movies. And he said, Mark, we use tape backup. <clears throat> and he said, these tape backups are, are certified to last hundreds or thousands of years and all that. And I said, that's great, but here's the problem with tape backup. There's no installed base okay there's no you can't just take one of these backup tapes and shove it into any normal pc right i mean 30 years from now we're going to go to goodwill to look for old 2024 computers that could read dvds okay none of them will have tape backup drives i guarantee you that here's the other problem with tape backup drives instead of actually having logic nobody in this computer industry has logic So every year they come up with a new tape backup standard. Okay, real smart, guys, real smart to have these tape backups that are so certified, you know, the film inside of it, the writable media inside of it is guaranteed to last a zillion years, whatever. But the drive itself, every year at least, they come out with a new style, a new format, a new shape of tape. Okay, so every year it's a whole new tape drive. So already there's a low installed base where only a tiny number of computers have a tape drive in them. But it's, is it the 2013 tape drive or the 1991 tape drive or the 2014 tape drive? Nobody knows. So it's utterly pointless. What good is it to have a beautiful piece of magnetic material, you know, a backup cassette tape, that stores all sorts of data in it, hundreds of gigs of data for cheap, but then you can't read it, right? That's the beauty of what this guy is saying here with the M-discs, is that they'll be readable by many DVD players, and there's probably millions of DVD players in the world, if not billions, so it won't be a problem in the future. But, But shame on you, if you get one of these tape backup drives, you won't be able to read that tape that survived. So that's ironic. You know, it's one thing if your tape broke and melted in the sun, but if your tape works perfectly fine, but there's just no drive to read it in, that's a great example of, of a, a very um, tragic, preventable issue. My industry is full of preventable, preventable issues that that could have been solved, right? It's not wear and tear. It's just stupidity. Okay. Here we go, last article. Uh, This is from Autoblog, January 2021. Author is Byron Hurd. NHTSA finally passes law allowing replica car sales. This has been in the works for half a decade. Replica fans rejoice. A new rule from the U.S. Department of Transportation will make it legal to sell turnkey replica cars in the U.S. The final rule was signed by the NHTSA. Uh, which is, I guess, a division of DOT. So, Department of Transportation deals with planes, trains, automobiles. NHTSA is just highway traffic. Uh, Kit cars have been sold for decades, but the key differentiator here is that the new rule allows for the production and sale of complete, fully assembled replicas. Okay, so you you could always go out and buy a kit car and assemble it yourself, but these are full-blown replicas that you can use on day one. Just like the U.S. import law, it will only allow for the sale of vehicles at least 25 years old, or designs of at least 25 years old, right? Uh, Replicas of 25-year-old cars. Um, The U.S. import law is really cool. You can't go out tomorrow and buy a brand new car in Japan and bring it back here, right? I mean, I suppose if you lived in Japan, you could drive it around for a little while and then move your residence to America, right? But I can't just go on eBay and buy a car from a Japanese guy right now. The car has to be 25 years old. So if I want to buy a Japanese car and import it to the U.S., I can call a buddy in Japan and I can say, Look, I want to buy a car from you, but it has to be 25 years old. Lucky for everyone, the Japanese usually preserve their cars and treat them really well. So you're going to get a 25-year-old car that looks just as good as a as a one-year-old abused American car, right? And, and of course, if you're up in Rochester here, you know that in six months, your entire car is completely eaten away by rust if you drive it around here because of all that liberal salting, gratuitous salting. Anyway, replicas have to be 25-year-old design, and builders will still have to license the original design from the manufacturers, and that's fine, right? I can't just go out and make my own Chevy Camaro without asking Chevy. But... This eases many restrictions on the production and sale of aftermarket reproduction and factory cars that they call factory continuation. They're not reproduction. If it's your own factory, you call it continuation. It's, oh yeah, we're going to resume production. We're going to continue production of this car that we sold a couple years ago. Okay, so aftermarket reproduction or factory continuation. Jaguar actually did something, and, and a lot of brands have done this recently, but Jaguar did something where they said, look, hey, you know that E-Type we made? Well, we actually, back in the 60s, created a couple extra nameplates that we forgot to use. Little serial number plates. So we're going to use them now. So they didn't have to go through any regulation, apparently, because, hey, we already stamped out these plates with serial numbers on them back in the 60s. So we'll just go ahead and make the rest of the car that goes with it. And, of course, they each car sold for like a million apiece or something. Uh, but that's pretty cool. SEMA applauds NHTSA's final ruling, allowing companies to market classic-themed cars. Okay, SEMA is, is a group of people who are uh, something about aftermarket, right? It's, it's a group of people who do aftermarket mods to their cars, modifications. Um, and, and in my opinion, actually, this is like Hollywood, where Hollywood is completely run out of original ideas, so at this point, all movies in Hollywood and all TV shows are just killing shows, because they have no idea what to do, because the people who the writers were raised to not have any kind of creativity, apparently. So um what's Hollywood and, and the TV world doing? They're just rebooting shows from the eighties, except making them modern, so they're stupid and pointless, and you know, it's like eighties shows except everyone kills everyone. <laughs> oh, depravity so anyway that that's why I only watch Bob Barker reruns at this point from the 70s because uh, there's very little shows that are that are good out there. Uh, I just saw a trailer for Cabrini and I will go see that because that looks like a show with an actual positive message. Anyway they they're running out of ideas. So apparently that's what's going on in the car industry where the car industry is running out of ideas, right? All these new cars just look like blobs and they feature batteries and they feature cloud control. So it's all, the cloud control is an anti-feature, really. But they don't have anything new. They don't have anything exciting like the old cars. Um, I highly recommend watching the movie Gattaca. It's one of my favorite movies. And in there, it's supposed to be the future, right? The middle 21st century, but they're all driving in cars that look like the 60s. They all drive cars that look like 60s British cars, and they just happen to have batteries in them. Um, and thats it's just because the design is so gorgeous, right? The whole That whole movie was just all about gorgeous design. Um, so that's what's going on. They've just run out of good ideas as far as car design, and we're going to go back to the old stuff, because that's when people had good ideas. Regulatory barriers have previously prevented small automakers from producing heritage cars for eager customers. The roadblocks have been eliminated, said the president of SEMA. There are some restrictions. Mazda can't just replicate the tooling for the 1990 Miata and start cranking them out again at the same high volume. We all wish they could. Mazda Miata was was a tiny roadster, started in 89, and they actually still make them today, but they're... Cloud-controlled blobs, but uh, people still—I still see 1989, 1990 Miata's driving around because they were so incredibly simple and reliable. Even though they were Japanese, they were called the the British Roadster perfected. So they took the idea of that tiny British drop top with a with a five-speed, and they made it reliable. Really, <clears throat> so. Manufacturers are limited to producing just 325 examples a year, and the engines must conform to current model year emissions. Well, still, if Mazda comes out with a Miata, a 1990 Miata replica, and they only sell 325 a year, honestly, that'll probably be enough, right? It's not going to be a mass market thing. This is a very niche appeal thing for, for those of us illuminated people, enlightened people who what do they call that in in the know people in the know those of us who, who sport goatees and know what we're talking about so I think that'll be enough right they'll still be gobbled up right away but if, if a lot of manufacturers start selling their classic models right let's say there's 10 manufacturers selling 325 of them that's still 3,000 cars a year that we're going to get from now on so it's ...going to be a little less rare now to be able to do this, so I think that'll be enough to satisfy the demand for us. The $305 billion bipartisan bill, which also had a bunch of pork barrel appropriations for road and bridge and mass transit, was passed back in 2015... I remember seeing that in auto magazines back then, wondering where it was. Back when I did my show on on regular radio in 2015, I remember talking about this. But the implementation of the new replica regulations got held up over at NHTSA. So the law was passed, the, the bill was passed, but it got held up in implementation just thinking about it, there are so many cars I would love to see reproduced, right? That's why these vintage Porsches go for so much, okay? It's not that that we want old cars, it's we want cars that are simple, simple cars, okay? The older Porsches were simple and reliable and infinitely fun to drive, And just so classy, those classic designs, right? Before they became bloated and had billions and trillions of computers and rules. And and the new ones actually punish you and tell you how to drive. Remember that episode I did uh, maybe a year ago about that where they say, shame on you, it's wet outside, watch your driving. Right? We don't want that. What we care about, what people care about, whether or not they realize it, is simplicity. So... That's your episode for today. That makes it an even thirty minutes. My name is Mark Anthony Arena. Stick around. Next episode, I've got a couple people I'm going to interview, you and you're going to love them. And then I'll do more solo teaching episodes. If you haven't already, please buy my book for everyone you know. It's available in anywhere books are sold, and you can go to my website find it as well. TheComputerExorcist.com. Thanks so much for listening, and you have a great week.